will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Welcome, Christian Israel, Pastor Eli James here. This is the Restoration Hour on Eurofolk Radio. Today is tax day, I believe. <laughs> April 15, 2023. And uh, because so many people have died in the last year, I, I bet the IRS is not collecting a lot of money this year. <laughs> but... The, the beat goes on, the show must go on, and we must continue to fight the beast with all our strength and all our aptitude and whatever else we can come up with. <laughs> uh, what, what, uh, what, what's that? True Grit. Yeah, I was trying to think of that movie with John Wayne. True Grit. We have to have true grit when fighting the beast. Because the beast is not going to give up. They're going to try to bury us. Just as Khrushchev said in the 1950s, we will bury you. Well, they haven't buried us yet. And the Berlin Wall came down, although that was just a ruse. The uh, the Jews living in the Soviet Union uh, weren't feeling comfortable there anymore because the Russians, the true Russians, ethnic Russians, not Jews, were becoming more and more anti-Jewish as time was going on. And that's why you have the, uh, I guess they call it the Refusenik movement, those Jews who wanted to leave the Soviet Union because the uh, typical Russians didn't want them. And uh, so uh, that was all hyped up as if it were some kind of persecution myth, even though the Soviet, uh, the Jews were still in charge of just about everything that uh, the Russia, the real Russians weren't cooperating with the Jew, Jewish uh, uh, oligarchy there. And uh, life was not as sweet for the Jews in the Soviet Union as it once had been. So they concocted this detente scheme whereby the Jew world order would now run everything from the United Nations and pretend that communism has died. No, it, ha- it never died. It was just renamed. It's called social justice now. They just renamed it, just like what do- they do with diseases. They 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 pretend they cure diseases uh, like uh, smallpox and uh, uh, MS and all that kind of thing. When in re- in reality, they don't cure anything. Uh, they they put out a vaccine, it, uh, it makes people sick, and this, uh, the same disease that uh, the vaccine is supposed to cure, and then when they find out it's not curing that disease, they just name it something else and say, well, no, our vaccine cured that disease, but now we have this new disease that's very almost identical to the old disease. 
But our vaccine did not cause that because our vaccine cured the old disease, right? That's what they did with polio. And they renamed it, oh, I forget what they renamed it now. Uh, It was very common for college students in the 1970s to get this new disease, 60s and 70s, to get this new disease, which is this polio, renamed, okay? So uh, this is how the allopathic oligarchy does it. So anyway, today we're going to start delving into Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the episode that that, uh, I had between myself and William Fink and Clifton Emmeheiser as to the true interpretation of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I had always followed the teachings of Dr. Wesley Swift and Bertrand Compare, who were two seed liners who taught that the only Adamic people were created in Genesis 1, 26, and 27, where the word is Adam, meaning to show blood in the face. And I had always assumed that uh, William Fink and Clifton Emmeheiser believed exactly the same thing. But as time went on, I wasn't sure what, what they exactly believe. And, but uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't seriously questioning that because the, to me that is so rock solid since the word Adam uh, right in, the, in your strong concordance says to show blood in the face. So that means that only white people are being talked about with the word Adam. So last week I did a show uh, about an article by Willie Martin about the two-legged beasts in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and other places because the assumption of the King James translators and just about everybody else in the world is that the Hebrew word che can never mean two-legged beasts. It can only mean four-legged beasts and lower-order beasts. That's what they think the word che means, okay? And that the correct pronunciation of that word is hava, a source name for the name of Eve, or the modern version of it being Eva. E hava is her name. And it's also the source word for living, it actually means living. It doesn't mean any particular type of beast or animal. The word simply means living. And so it started out that after a while, and uh, Bill Fink was my co-host on many shows for about two and a half years. He was actually the webmaster of my website, www.anglo-saxonisrael.com, for two, that same span of two and a half years. So I trusted Bill implicitly with you know, my passwords and basically everything. Uh, okay, so sorry, no sound on Telegram. Uh, very busy today. <laughs> sorry, thank you for telling me, Lily. Okay, there should be sound on Telegram now. Uh, uh, so, somewhat exhausted from doing yard work, uh, which I haven't done in years. <laughs> yard work. I've done construction. But digging ditches is not my usual fare, especially after a seven-month stint of a bad hip where I've been on a, walking with a cane for the last seven months. So I'm coming out of that that, that uh, hip injury 
and getting back to normal life. And so thanks for letting me know, Lily. I, I, I probably would have done the whole show <laughs> and not even realized that there's no – I forgot to click the uh, live button on Telegram, so thank you. But getting back to the story here, I began to notice something odd with regard to the word uh, goy, which is often translated falsely as Gentile in the Old Testament, and the same is done with the Greek word ethnos in the New Testament. It's often translated as Gentile. And when I was writing my book, The Grand Impersonation, I came to realize that there's no way that the word Gentile, well, first of all, it does not exist in either the Greek or the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is goi, the Greek word is ethnos, and in both cases, it simply means nation. That's, or in the, in the case of ethnos, Strong's Concord says race, comma, nation. So it always amazed me that very few Bible translations contain the word race. The ones that do are the Farrar Fenton and the Jerusalem Bible. And so uh, the Jerusalem Bible has become my favorite Bible because it contains the word race where it should be race. It uh, contains the sacred names Yahweh and Yahshua. And uh, I don't think it it contains the word Gentile at all. Uh, It's been a while since I've opened my Jerusalem Bible, so I'm not sure. But it contains the Apocrypha. That's the other good thing about the Jerusalem Bible. So those three things uh, I really like about the Jerusalem Bible. Now, the original King James, the 1611 King James, also contains the Apocrypha. But the Apocrypha were deleted from the King James at some point in history, and so they really should, the King James, all the King James versions should have the Apocrypha in there. My understanding is that uh, here in America, during the Revolutionary War, the colonists were running out of paper so that they simply deleted the Apocrypha from the Bibles, their Bible, their printed Bibles, and no one ever bothered to correct it back to the correct listing, okay? So that's my understanding of how that happened. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Rich. So, uh, and okay, so the, I noticed that, that Bill Fink, and here, let me just give you my understanding of the, the word goy as used in the Old Testament and ethnos as used in the New Testament. In every case, it means simply nation or race, comma, nation. The only way to determine whether the Hebrew word goy is referring to Israel or to Adam kind or to some other people, some other ethnic group, is to check the context. There are definitely places in in the Old Testament where the Hebrew word goy is not referring to Israelites or even to Adamites. It's simply referring to non-Israelites and non-Adamites. Often, the, the King James translated in those places as heathen, meaning the non-Israelites. And, also, and the Adamites who are not Israelites are often also called heathen 
in the Old Testament. And that is a fair, it's not terribly incorrect. It's a fair usage because it's referring to non-Israelite nations. So, however, Bill Fink was starting to say that wherever you see the word uh, goy, it should only mean Israel. And I, I knew that that wasn't correct, although I didn't call him on it because it wasn't that big of an issue at the time. But I began to realize that uh, he kept on insisting that that's the case, that he would translate certain passages as if they were referring to Israel, when in, in fact they were simply referring to Adam kind or to all races in general. And I, said, I called him up and said, hey, Bill, you can't be you can't be taking a word that uh, has a general meaning and make the meaning specific to your liking. You have to stick with the context of the passage, and if it's not obviously about Israel uh, or Adam kind, then you have to say so. And so he started interpreting certain verses which were definitely not about Israel <laughs> and claiming they were about Israel. So I said, okay, all right, have it your way. And so that was the beginning of uh, you know, the, uh, the fact that I was going to have uh, you know, legitimate biblical disputes with Bill Fink. But uh, the word che is a completely different matter uh, because it's clear from all concordances that it means life living. It does not mean a four-legged beast or a creepy crawler thing. It can mean two-legged beast with the correct context, and I went through that context on last week's show, and that, that's the show that Willie Martin, the uh, not, not, not all beasts in the Bible are four-legged creatures, okay? And there's another article, very good, uh, Jason Blaha, wrote an article entitled Beast with a Hand. Beast with a Hand. So not all beasts in Scripture are four-legged beasts or lower, okay? That just is easily provable by checking the word studies uh, wherever you see the beast, word beast, whether the Hebrew source word is che or behemoth, doesn't really matter. There are two-legged beasts in Scripture, uh, I can understand why the King James translators may have overlooked such a thing. It happens very often that the translators simply settle on a definition, even though that definition may be not entirely correct, and then everybody else copies that you know, definition and usage, and the original mistake never gets corrected. Well, I'm all about correcting basic mistakes, such as the word Gentile, which does not belong in Scripture at all. It simply does not belong in Scripture because it does not reflect any Hebrew or Greek word. And so I've done numerous shows about that. But the same is true for the word beast because the word beast can often mean two-legged hominids who are land-dwelling, air-breathing animals. Okay, That's what the word che or hava means. Okay? And uh, Freebird asks, what version of the Jerusalem uh, Bible do you have? Uh, okay, uh, gee, I bought mine in the 70s. Uh, 
So uh, that's uh, it's an old version. <laughs> uh, hopefully they haven't uh, made any changes to it. But uh, you can probably check that if it contains the word race and has the Apocrypha, yeah, then you're good to go. If they, if they made any changes to it since 19, the 1970s, they probably eliminated the word race and probably put Gentile in there instead of the word race or nation. Okay, so uh, so good uh, good luck. Uh, okay, a 1966 on eBay that'll probably do the trick. That will probably do the trick. So, but before we get into that, because I want to, I don't want to just focus on my dispute with Fink and Emmerheiser. I want to do a deep dive into Genesis chapter one, and there's an article that I posted in both chat areas entitled "Yam with Number." Yam with number. This is from the Hope of Israel Ministries, and I see uh, this was not contained on the Hope of Israel. This is a Christian identity website from Australia, and uh, I cited this uh, this article in my writings uh, uh, in the 1970s and 80s already, but it was not yet online. Okay, so. The article here is entitled, The Hebrew Word Yam Used with a Number in Genesis 1. And here's an introductory paragraph here, but this is by Rodney Whitefield, Ph.D. It can be shown that the time between the first and God said of Genesis 1-3 and the completion stated in Genesis 2-1 is not limited to 144 hours. That's six days, literal days. An interval of 144 hours, six 24-hour days, is not a required consequence of interpreting the recreative yam as six 24-hour days. And he does emphasize recreation, okay? Because it's obvious from this that he believes in the gap theory, as do I, as do many others. I just found out that Arnold Murray also uh, taught that. And many, many Hebrew scholars teach that because Yahweh said replenish, not plenish. If it were the first creation, then he would have said plenish. But no, there was a huge catastrophe circa 13,000 B.C., 12,000 B.C. And don't you know all the ice cores and stuff? The, uh, all, all the archaeology, everything terminates with the year 12,000 B.C., or more approximately 11,500 B.C. There was a cataclysmic event that destroyed the previous earth, the previous age. A cataclysmic event that destroyed the uh, previous age. Plato talks about it in his writings. There's a fantastic book by a German uh, geologist slash archaeologist by Otto Muck, who uh, wrote a book about Atlantis. And that book about Atlantis is purely a uh, geological and archaeological text explaining how the last 12,000 years of geology are only recent for this Era, he explains, there was in fact a continent called Atlantis in the Atlantic Ocean 
which sank as a result of the Earth being hit by a planetoid, comet, or asteroid, a major, major catastrophe, which wiped out nearly all life on Earth. Not quite everything, but nearly all life on Earth. Definitely wiped out all civilization as it was known in those days because the Atlanteans had a very high level of civilization. They built the pyramids, and they uh, had a, a gridwork structure across the entire planet connecting all the pyramids. And uh, these are according to the ley lines that a lot of people know about the ley lines. And the major constructions of pyramids, temples, you, you name it, were constructed at the intersection points of this crystalline, living crystalline structure that the Earth has. The Earth still has this living crystalline structure. All the people with dowsing rods and ley lines, and in fact, you know, Chartres Cathedral, Notre Dame, uh, you, know, you name it, the major constructions, the cathedrals are all built on these intersection points of the planetary grid system. Those pyramids still exist. They're in South America, they're in China, they're in uh, Yugoslavia, they're in Africa, they're everywhere. Yet there's no record of these pyramids being built except for the reconstruction of the pyramids in Egypt. And the ziggurat in uh, Iraq was a recent construction as well. But these, and the temples in uh, Central America, South America, Peru, there are mounds in North America. Who built them? Nobody knows. They're older than modern-day archaeologists want you to believe because they don't want you to understand that this planet has gone through a major catastrophe and our science is just pipsqueak science compared to what was going on then, okay? I believe they had uh, anti-gravity machines and they've rediscovered anti-gravity in the modern era. So we're just catching up with what was uh, understood in Atlantean times. They had batteries, the Parthian battery. Archaeologists know about the Parthian battery, okay? Uh, how did they light up the, all those tunnels that they lived in? It wasn't with torches because you don't see any soot on the ceiling of the Great Pyramid passageways, which you know, took an immense amount of uh, construction. There's no soot. How did they light those passageways? We don't know. But they probably had some sort of uh, energy that we, we're unaware of today. Uh, there's also pyramid energy. If you go uh, online and look at pyramid energy, you will find that the pyramid has a double helix force field going upwards into the atmosphere and downwards into the earth in the shape of a double helix. It has been photographed with Kirlian photography, so we know it's there. Okay? Who invented this form of energy or who exploited it? Modern science, because it's controlled by Jews, is not telling you any of this stuff, all right? So it's evident to me that Rodney Whitefield here is an advocate of the so-called gap theory, or which I prefer to call the recreation account of Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so let's continue. Because he uses the term recreative here uh, twice. No, no, it's just once, sorry. 
When this fact is understood, many of the often encountered arguments are found to be pointless exercises. Okay, so he's definitely arguing for old earth creationism, not new earth creationism, the 24-hour variety of new earth. Okay, he's definitely arguing against that. Here we go. Recently, a reader of my book, Reading Genesis 1, asked about the use of a number with the Hebrew word yam. Specifically, I was asked to comment on the statement, quote, day with the numerical adjectives in Hebrew always refers to a 24-hour period, which appears in John MacArthur's study Bible in reference to Genesis 1, verse 5. The quoted statement is one which is commonly offered to justify eliminating the long extended period of time meaning of the Hebrew word yam in Genesis 1, 3 through 31. That is all of chapter 1. Eliminating the extended period or age meaning would then give support for a 24-hour interpretation for the duration of the creative times. In the first chapter of Genesis, the singular word yam appears with a number at the conclusion of each of the creative times. So you could say day one, day two, day three, etc. Sorry. Subsequently, in this article, Yam refers to the single Hebrew word form. Okay? So, and I have come to the conclusion that the Hebrew word Yam has exactly the same range of meanings as the English word day. The word day can mean a part of a day. It could mean an eternity, (laughs) the judgment day. It could mean uh, an ambiguous amount of time. The the same range of meanings for the English word day are to be found in the Hebrew word yam. Okay? So, again, you have to check the context to find out what is the real meaning. You just can't jump to the conclusion that it means a 24-hour day, which is the grossest error that most of these Judeo-Christians teach. Okay, And it's clearly wrong. And Dr. Rodney Whitefield agrees that it's clearly wrong. Okay, So, in order to illustrate the differing opinions which have been offered as interpretation, I will very briefly quote two well-known Bible scholars about the numbering of the word Yom. Both scholars hold the extended period or age views of the meaning of Yam as describing the duration of the creative times. Subsequently, I will explain why the opinion of these two scholars has substantial support in Hebrew in contradiction to the claim in the MacArthur Study Bible. First, the quotes, Gleason L. Archer, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, pages 60 and 61. Quote, There were six major stages, that's a good way of putting it, stages, not 24-hour days, in this work of formation. And Now, actually, that's bad because it is creation because it's the Hebrew word bara, which means to create. We don't come to formation until chapter 2 where Adam was formed after being created, after the species was created in Genesis 1. And these stages are represented by successive days of a week. They're represented by that, okay? It's figurative language. In this connection, it is important to observe that none of the six creative days bears a definite article in the Hebrew text. 
the translations the first day, the second day, etc., are in error. The Hebrew says, and the evening took place, and the morning took place, day one. Hebrew expresses the first day by Hayam Harison, but this text says simply Yam Ehad, day one. Again, in verse 8, we that's Harrison with, uh, with one R. Interesting. But this text says simply Yam Ehad, day one. Again, in verse 8, we read not Hayam Haseni, the second day, but Yam Seni, a second day. In Hebrew prose of this genre, the definite article was generally used when the noun was intended to be definite. Only in poetic style could it be omitted. The same is true with the rest of the six days. They all lack the definite article. Thus, they are well adapted to a sequential pattern rather than to strictly delimited units of time. So, it says, era 1, era 2, era 3, era 4, era 5, era 6, and era 7 was when Yahweh rested from bara, that is creation. So that is my interpretation of Genesis 1, with all the species having been created in Genesis 1. Now, Fink and Emma Heiser claim that they weren't all, the creation event was not completed in Genesis 1, that there was more creation taking place in Genesis 2. But I told Fink and Emma Heiser, now wait a minute, there was a day of rest. <laughs> Genesis chapter 2 starts out with Yahweh resting from creative work. If you're going to insist that Yahweh was doing creative work in Genesis 2, which it doesn't say create, it says formed, Yatsar, then what happens to the day of rest? You're ignoring the day of rest. If uh, it, it clearly says he rested from the act of creation. But they want to argue that Yahweh did not create the non-white species in Genesis chapter 1. That's why they use that interpretation. So they're the ones actually promoting the eighth-day creation thesis, which is not justified by the Hebrew language. Okay, That's where this eighth-day creation business comes from, and that is a gross error. The uh, word Yatsar means form, and so what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is all species, kind after kind, like begets like, being created in Genesis 1. Then on the sixth yom, or sixth stage, I like that language even better, the sixth stage was when Yahweh rested from creation. Then Genesis chapter 2 picks up the story of an example or a representative Adamite who, because it says, male and female, he created them in the plural in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Male and female, he created them. So there were all kinds of Adamites running around on the surface of the earth in Genesis chapter 1. Also, the command to be fruitful and multiply was given in Genesis chapter 1. 
not Genesis chapter 2. So I confronted Fink and Emheiser with these facts, but they stuck to their guns and claimed no. Well, they were trying to reinterpret a Genesis 1 and 2 so that they could eliminate the non-white races from being created by Yahweh in Genesis 1. They did not want the Bible to say that Yahweh created the other races. Okay, why? Well, because they also teach that at the judgment day, Yahweh will destroy all the non-white races because he he only wants the white race to survive. So when they first ran this theory by me, I said, well, okay, uh, write something up. Uh, give me your reasoning for this, this interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. You know, uh, if, it's, if it's true, I'll, I'll, I'll support you. But if, if you can't prove to me that this interpretation is valid, uh, then uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to support you on this. Okay? So as it turned out, it isn't valid, right? Uh, Clifton Emmerheiser wrote a, a series of articles about Genesis 1 and 2 in which he makes really lunatic-type arguments. We'll get into those as this series progresses. But let's get through this, because I've just given you my, which I call the recreation hypothesis or the chronological account. Everything in Genesis, in fact, virtually the whole Bible except for uh, you know, certain books. Uh, certainly, the Torah is chronological, and you know, from the creation day down to you know the end of uh, you know the Book of Numbers, uh, etc. So uh, it, that's all chronological. So there's nothing that, uh, certainly in Genesis that isn't chronological. There may be references back to certain things that happen, you know, which is true in the, uh, uh, the middle books of the Torah because you have the law given in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So that sort of thing. But the account is generally chronological, and certainly the account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is chronological. So let's continue. So that's very good. I like this. This is Gleason L. Archer talking about the fact that the word Yom lacks a definite article, which means that you can't give it the... uh, definitive, this is the day, number one. So you can't say it's a 24-hour day. Gleason Archer was associate editor of the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. In the quote above, the first two italicized letters, a ha, of words like Harrison, or Harrison, I'll pronounce it in the English, Harrison, indicate the preview prefix he, meaning the. Norman L. Geisler Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, page 271, Zondervan, 1999, says this, quote, Numbered days need not be solar. Neither is there a rule of Hebrew language demanding that all numbered days in a series refer to 24-hour days. Even if there were no exceptions in the Old Testament, it would not mean that day in Genesis 1 could not refer to more than one 24-hour period. But there is another example in the Old Testament, Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2. Clearly, the prophet is not speaking of solar days, but of longer periods in the future. Yet he numbers the days in series, unquote. 
Now, given MacArthur's statement and the above two quotes, a reader of the Bible is faced with two contradictory claims by established authorities. Well, the first is a Judeo-Christian. <laughs> so, I don't consider that an authority. How is this to be resolved? My view is that MacArthur's statement is not supported by the underlying Hebrew text, and that the Hebrew text does not su- does support rather Archer and Geisler. My analysis will first consider the numbering of the singular word Yam from the numbers 2, 2nd through 6, etc. And so I won't bother to read the rest of it. I post a, l- a link to the article in both Telegram and the Eurofolk Radio chat rooms. It's an outstanding article. But it just goes to show that modern Judeo-Christianity is making so many assumptions about the meanings of words that are simply false, like the word Adam. (laughs) It means to show blood in the face. It doesn't mean man in the sense of human or humankind or mankind or anything like that. It means Adamkind, the species that shows blood in the face. That's what that word means. And there's no Judeo-Christian ministry will, that will tell you that. In fact, now let's go to the article Genesis 1 and 2, where uh, I, I put the link in the chat room as well. And I'm going to talk about uh, the antiquity of the name Adam. This is about uh, an eighth of the way down into the article. And this generally... Uh, Fink and Emma Heiser, I'll just refer to them as Finkeheiser. I gave them that uh, name because generally they wrote as a team when I was having this, this dispute with them. And actually they wrote as a team until Emma Heiser died. So let's continue. The antiquity of the name Adam. The reader will observe, notwithstanding that the bisyllable ADM Adam cannot be a primitive but must be a secondary formation, according to the progressive scale of linguistic development. Of course, uh, the, the first words were single syllable, like dam. Uh, what, dam what, what does dam or dam mean in Hebrew? It means blood. D-A-M, blood. That's what the word dam means. Okay. I'm going to skip the rest of this. Uh, okay, well, actually, this is... Uh, yeah, I'll skip this next paragraph. The word adam, or A-D-M, or with an additional vowel, Adam, is consequently to be divided into two separate words, A and Dam, or Adam. Now, A, Aleph, is the primeval Semitic masculine article, A, for the, T-H-E. An article that in scripture is prefixed to above 40 masculine substantives, although until recently the fact was unperceived by Hebrew grammarians, or Jewish lexicographers, and certainly the Jewish lexicographers would have tried to suppress this fact and the true meaning of the word Adam. In the next place, the word Adam does not proceed, as the rabbis suppose, from Adama, a high syllable or multisyllable, from a trisyllable, but the latter is an extension of the former root Dam, Arabic Dem, meaning blood the color of which, being red, originated the secondary significance of dam as red or to be red. All right, so I skip the next major paragraph here, pretty much coming to the conclusion of the authors here. 
We adopt entirely the Italian rendering of the great interpreter of sacred philology at the Vatican and think with Lanzi that Il Rosicante, the blusher, is the happiest translation of the old Semitic particle noun and noun Adam. Okay, so Adam means to blush. Our patriarch David is described as fair and ruddy. First Samuel 17.42 Fair means that he had white skin. And ruddy means that his complexion was rosy because his blood showed through his skin. This is only true of the white race, as not and Gidden, Glidden correctly observe in the above article. Of course, all of the statues of David depict sorry statues of David depict him as a pure white man. This is because his artisan descendants, the Caucasian people, depict their ancestors as being of the same race. He was not a Jew, because the Jews are members of all races and colors, variously mixed up together in each individual Jew. Having established the fact that the Adamites are white and only white, we can proceed with our analysis of Genesis 1 and 2. Sorry for all the introductory material, but it's really important to understand what's going on in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 so that we can talk intelligently about you know, what the difference of opinion is here. Okay, so the chronological account versus the recapitulation hypothesis. And my, my position is the chronological account you know, with the uh, addition of the gap theory as well. This essay is intended to, as additional material for the Enmity series, which is a six parts on uh, Anglo-SaxonIsrael.com, which you have the link to. This is the old uh, website on archive.org. My ongoing research into ancient technologies has revealed that the operating premise of the Enmity series is totally correct, namely that a highly advanced ancient civilization once existed before 10,500 B.C., This highly advanced civilization can certainly be identified with the lost Atlantis, and it is quite possible that there were other previous contemporaneous empires as well. Since the white race has created all of the highest levels of civilization, it has also been one of my premises that Atlantis, Mu, Lemuria, or whatever other earlier civilizations might have existed were also developed by whites. In my ongoing dispute with Fink and Emmeheiser, I will also focus on evidence refuting their contention that the story of Adam in Genesis 1 is contemporaneous with the Adam of Genesis 2. Okay? Now, my position, in a nutshell, is that all species were created in Genesis 1, and after Genesis 1, that the creation ended. There was no more creating done after Genesis 1. There was formation done. There were changes made. There were upgrades made. In fact, there was an upgrade made to Adam, the man, the individual, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when Yahweh breathed the breath of life into him. But this was after the day of rest, which is Yom number 7. So, Finkeheiser argues that no, Yahweh is never rested. <laughs> He's still resting, they claim. I'm sorry, folks. That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. Yahweh did, in fact, rest. The Bible clearly says so. 
And there's passages later on in the Old Testament where it says, Yahweh worketh. Yahweh is working. He's still working. He's keeping the universe going. He's not creating the universe anymore, but he's running it. He's keeping it going. Okay? He's managing the, the, the universe. He, if, if he weren't managing the universe, it would die. Okay? He has to keep on re-energizing the universe second by second at the highest rate of uh, vibration conceivable that we are unable to measure because our instruments can't measure vibrations that fast. Okay. So, so the two differences are the uh, chronological account uh, and uh, their recapitulation theory postulates that Genesis 2 merely provides additional information about the same day, namely day 6 of Genesis 1. My thesis, which I call the chronological account, refutes this notion as being both unscriptural and unscientific. This essay will provide more evidence in favor of the chronological account as the proof of pre-Adamic white civilization continues to mount. Okay? It continues to mount to this day. Cro-Magnon, for example, clearly Caucasoid skeletons predate 6000 BC when Adam was created or formed, when an Adamic species was created. And clearly it does say male and female, he created them, and they were told to be fruitful and multiply before he rested. Fink and Emmeheiser have gone on record stating that any pre-Adamites, including Cro-Magnon, could only be hybrid creations of the fallen angels, mixing with some subhuman species. Okay. So, in other words, they're saying the pre-Adamites, the white pre-Adamites, and the Cro-Magnon was clearly white, their skeletons are exactly the same as modern Caucasoid skeleton, with the one exception, that they had larger skulls, <laughs> right? They had more brain matter than we do today. Maybe, maybe we got demoted <laughs> after after Adam and Eve sinned. Maybe we got demoted in intelligence level and had our brains shrink. That's clearly what the archaeological evidence says. Okay, so you have to include the archaeological evidence. You can't just go by scripture because the scripture the book bible is a historical book yahweh wrote both the historical record he created the universe wrote the historical record and his prophets wrote the bible so the two must agree the two must agree let's continue i will show that the pre-adamic white civilizations referred to by archaeologists as cro-magnon existed before Adam and Eve were formed in Genesis 2, and that this Cro-Magnon race was the parent race of Adam and Eve. It was the parent race. So Adam and Eve, according to my argument, is that the man Adam was selected from the pre-existing Adamic species of Genesis 1. Eve also was selected from that race of male and female. He created them in Genesis 1. She was also selected, and the two were melded together by having their DNA changed so that they are perfect matches. The DNA matches perfectly. The word translated as rib is a bad translation. It means side. 
it means half. So both Adam and Eve were half of the species because male and female, he created them. But he upgraded the species with Adam and Eve when he breathed his spirit into Adam in Genesis 7, Genesis 2, 7. And the same thing had to be done to Eve, otherwise she would not be a perfect match for him. Okay? The other possibility is that he took Adam's DNA... I don't think he cut Adam in half <laughs> because you know, one side would be male, the other side would be female. That makes no sense. But what he did was he d- used Adam's upgraded DNA. He breathed his spirit into Adam, and then he did the same to a woman and called her Eve. By the way, the word Eve comes from the same Hebrew word, root word, hava, meaning life to live, living. Theological misunderstandings of the creation account are due primarily to the failure of the translators to properly distinguish between the various meanings of the Hebrew words. As the following word studies will show, the translators have done a miserable job of translating the Hebrew into English. Amen to that. So I already read the uh, article on the word yom, so we don't need to go through that again. But the the important thing here is that, I I know I talk about it later, but uh, I need to bring it up, because there was no sun or moon in the sky, or even stars in the sky, until the fourth day. That being the case, how in the world can you speak of 24-hour days at all, (laughs) when nobody could see the sun, moon, and stars? And the reason for that, my explanation in the Enmity series, which is also on this website, is that this catastrophe was so great that the the atmosphere was covered with clouds for nearly 200 years. The only civilization, there was only two areas, well, actually three. Now I've come to the conclusion that there were three areas where civilization could still flourish under these conditions. You're talking about a volcanic winter where sunlight would only come into the planet, into the atmosphere at the equator where the sun's rays are more direct and could penetrate and get warmer, warm up the earth. And you could have agriculture, limited agriculture there. And you would still have that mist. However, the atmosphere would be poisonous but the poison would subside, and after a while, you could probably grow, grow crops. And there's evidence that the Sahara Desert was once a tropical paradise. Absolutely the, the case. It was once a tropical paradise under the sands of the Sahara. There is all kinds of evidence of a tropical paradise. The uh, archaeologists and the geologists don't want to study that because it may disrupt their fable of evolution, okay? But that is indeed the case. All right, let's continue. Oh, by the way, one more thing. Uh, a lot of the sand in the Sahara is, oh, I forget, geoids? I forget the name of the term. It's like tiny little balls of glass, These balls of glass form only two ways, during an atomic explosion, 
which melts glass, and then while the glass is up in the atmosphere, it forms into a little spheroid and falls back down to the ground, or it just happens right then and there where the atomic explosion happened, or by a meteoric explosion, okay? So again, that, that's an, another indication. The Sahara Desert is more confirmation that this event did, in fact, take place. So you're not going to get this kind of information from mainstream pseudoscience and certainly not from mainstream religion. They're just not going to talk about it at all. So we have to do our own research and uh, you know, make sure that uh, history and archaeology and geology and the Bible conform to one another, which they do. They absolutely do. Okay? So... Let's continue. So we've got this situation now where Genesis 1 is where all the creative work took place. And Genesis 2 is the day of formation, not a creation day. So let's continue. Next is the evening and the morning, which a lot of... uh, Judeo-Christians say, well, that's proof that these were 24-hour days. No, it's not proof that they were 24-hour days because the evening, if you count the number of hours from evening to morning, that's only 12 hours. So are you going to say it was a 12-hour day? The evening and the morning, it doesn't talk anything about noon, the uh, uh, forenoon, noon, afternoon. It's only talking about evening and morning. That's only 12 hours. And it's really only the nighttime. This expression, evening and morning, only concerns the nighttime. So why is that? You have to stretch the meaning of the words evening and morning to conclude that it means a 24-hour day. Okay? It certainly doesn't. Okay? So here, at an article from John W. Green toward the middle of the section, the evening and the morning. Some claim Yom attached to number ordinal first, second, third requires a 24-hour day interpretation. However, Bible scholars dispute that. For example, noted Hebrew scholar Gleason L. Archer states the ordinal simply defines a symbolic unit of time and serves as no real evidence for a literal 24-hour day concept on the part of the biblical author. Okay, so we discussed that already. Okay, thus they are only uh, sequential patterns of time. You name, you name, you pick the, the time you like. Okay, right. So now the expression "evening and morning." This is an idiom. It is an idiom. And idioms cannot be taken literally, folks. This idiom still exists in the Middle East by people who speak Arabic and other tongues. Okay? Quote, Evening and morning is an idiomatic expression in Semitic languages. Like all idioms, its meaning is non-literal, but clearly understood by native speakers. The phrase evening and morning can, like Yom, denote a long and indefinite period. The Old Testament itself unambiguously uses the evening and morning phrase in just such a way. 
In Daniel 8, we read the account of Daniel's ram and goat vision and the interpretation given by Gabriel. The vision covers many years. Some commentators believe the time has not yet been completed. Well, that's a long evening and morning, if you ask me. Daniel 8.26 says, quote, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that have been given to you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. In Hebrew manuscripts, the evenings and mornings is not in the plural but in the singular, identical to the expression we find in Genesis 1. Translated literally, the verse would read, And the vision of the evening and the morning that has been given you. Here we have a clear indication from scriptural usage that this phrase does not demand a 24-hour day interpretation and can refer to an indefinite epoch. I like that word, epoch. I like the word uh, eon even better. Why? Because it's very, very similar to the Hebrew word yaum. If you say the Hebrew word yaum quickly, Yaum, Ian, Yaum, Ian, Yaum, Ian. They're very close, very close. Okay. So, and there's uh, there's more evidence provided in this article for that being an idiom. And unfortunately, the King James translators and most translations do not take into consideration the idiomatic usage of many phrases. They simply ignore the idioms and try to... They try to interpret idiomatic phrases literally when they shouldn't. I mean, that's just poor scholarship, folks. That's just really poor scholarship. Okay. Let me let me uh, quote one more. This is uh, uh, Mr. Collins to, to really bring this home. Much of the confusion comes from the King James Version, which combines evening and morning together, quote, and the evening and the morning were the nth day as Collins notes. Grammatically, the AV authorized version, which is the King James Version, compresses the two events into a sum, namely, the evening plus the morning were a day. This is incorrect. A more accurate translation is found in the NASB and ESV. Quote, and there was evening and there was morning the nth day. Note the time period from evening to morning brackets only the night, as I just pointed out. It only brackets the nighttime. As Collins states, this means that any effort to find this as defining a 24-hour day runs counter to the author's, Moses' own presentation. Okay? So, now, Genesis chapter 1 is full of these kinds of problems. And it just goes to show you, when the Judeo-Christian theologians can't get Genesis 1 right. And believe me, folks, they have hardly anything right in Genesis chapter 1. So if you start off reading the Bible on the wrong foot or you're on the wrong track, (laughs) you're on the wrong track from day one, you'll never get back to the original track. You have to back up, start over, and get it right from the get-go. So next word is Adam, which we already covered. And uh, and, and we have uh, uh, copious evidence here that Adam means to show blood in the face and can only mean white people. Okay, so uh, let's pick this up next week. We'll get into the nitty-gritty 
of the difference between the chronological account and the eighth-day creation account that is promoted by Finkeheiser. So we need to get this stuff right, folks. We have to have the proper context for every word we read in Scripture. We have to have the proper context. If you have the wrong context, you're going to come to false conclusions. Just as in real estate, there are three rules of selling real estate. Location, location, location. The three rules of interpreting Scripture are context, context, context. If you break those three rules, you will never understand the Bible, okay? We're just warming up now, folks. This is going to get better as we go into Genesis chapter 2. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. I'm all fired up. Yeah, just like uh, there's a, that heat in the center of the <laughs> There's a fire down below. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you tomorrow on Bloodlines and also next week for more Restoration Hour and Genesis 1 and 2. Take care, everybody. Yahweh bless. Bye-bye. Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.